Take your Bibles out this morning and turn back with me, if you would please, to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 20, and at verse 20 in chapter 3 and going down through verse 1 of chapter 4, and we're talking this morning about faith impacting family and work. Now, we continue in that section of Scripture that since the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther referred to as the Hostoffen, the house table passage, the house code passage that talks about the different responsibilities that we have in our own families. And you know, as I've told you the past couple of weeks, it does little good for us to preach the good news to the world and tell about abundant life in Jesus if that abundant life hasn't impacted our own lives and our own families. And so we know that our Christian faith has to begin at home, in our marriages, in our parenting, in those relationships that we have in our own household. Stand with me and let's begin reading in verse 17. I, I think just to kind of set the context once again. And we'll go from verse 17 again down to verse 1 of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, we thank you for these words, very practical words to those who lived in the world of the Apostle Paul. Very practical words to us today. Lord, we do pray that our homes, our, our marriages, our work, everything that we're engaged in would be pleasing and honoring to you. Lord, may others be able to look at us and know that there is a difference that you have made. Just as the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Lord, help us to walk in that newness of life that Christ brings to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 
In Baker's Dictionary of Christian Ethics, a man by the name of J.C. Winger writes, listen to what he says. He says, Christianity burst into a corrupt world with a brilliantly new moral radiance. The moral level of society was dismal and sin prevailed in its many forms. Into this discouraged world came Christ and his spirit-filled and spirit-transformed disciples. Filled with holy joy, motivated by a love which the pagans could not grasp, and proclaiming the good news, the message that God has provided a Savior. These Christians lived in tiny communities knit together in the power of the Holy Spirit, little colonies of heaven. They thought of themselves as pilgrims on their way to the celestial city, but they were very much concerned to manifest the love of Christ in all human relationships. These early Christians insisted on bringing all of life under the lordship of Christ. It is men and women of this kind of moral purity who built into society a strong fabric of integrity and strength. Life was cheap in the pre-Christian world. Murder, abortions, infant exposure, war. People died in great numbers without anyone being troubled in conscience. The early Christians brought a new concern into society on these very points. Now, in more recent times, as one writer states in his commentary on Colossians, he says, much of the social reform in Western society has been related to Christianity. Leaders of the 18th century evangelical awakening, men such as John Wesley, often spoke out against the social evils of their day. John Howard, a contemporary of Wesley's, worked tirelessly for prison reform. The great awakening of early 18th century America led by the preaching of men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards resulted in the founding of several universities. Pressure from evangelicals like William Wilberforce caused Britain to abolish the slave trade in 1807 and outlaw slavery in all of her possessions in 1833. American evangelicals were also involved in the abolitionist movement that culminated in the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. He goes on to say the 19th century British evangelical Lord Shaftesbury was instrumental in getting Parliament to pass laws regarding, slay, uh, regarding child labor. William Carey, the founder of modern missions and missionary to India himself, worked for the abolition of widow burning and child sacrifice. Missionaries to Africa discouraged polygamy, fought the slave trade, 
and built schools and hospitals. Now, folks, what is often not taught in American schools anymore is that the efforts of Christianity, it, it was greatly due to the efforts of Christianity that erased or at least lessened many of the social ills of their day. Now, you know, as believers, we know that this world is not our home. We know that. And we know that, as Jesus said, we are to be laying up our treasures in heaven and not on this earth. We know that. But, folks, that does not mean that we are not to be concerned about what goes on in this life, in this world. Nowhere should the effects of Christianity be any more evident in a believer's own household. As we began seeing last week, one's Christian faith is to impact his or her marriage. We saw that what Christians are being told here is that God's original blueprint for marriage can be recaptured a little bit by those who name the name of Jesus Christ. Well, today let's continue to look at Christianity's impact on the home. And what we're going to see today, what we're going to continue to learn from this passage today is that your Christian faith should radically transform every single relationship that you have. Folks, it does little good for the church to go around preaching the gospel if the gospel that has freed us from our sins does not at the same time better our families. First of all, this morning we're going to simply look at instructions to children. Instructions to children. There in verse 20, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now the word that the Apostle Paul uses for children here is really broad enough to include any age child who still lives under his parents' roof. It kind of makes me think what my dad always said to me. He said, son, I don't care if you're 25 years old. If you still live under my roof and I support you, if you need a whipping, you're going to get a whipping. The word that the Apostle Paul uses here would support that sentiment. Any child living under his parents' roof is to obey his parents. Now the fact that children are to honor and obey their parents is taught repeatedly in the Bible throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. All the way back to the Ten Commandments, it's listed as the first commandment with promise. Children, honor your father and mother that you might live long in the land. Because you see, back then, if a son dishonored his mom and dad and cursed them or struck them, the community of believers was to take that young man out and they were to put him to death. It was deemed that important to the growing of a believing society. 
The book of Proverbs is full of warnings and curses for children who do not obey their parents. And Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that one of the signs of living in the last days right before Jesus returns is that children will become disobedient and rebellious to their parents. Now notice that the Apostle Paul says, Be obedient to your parents in all things. Now I think we could safely say that the New Testament tempers both ideas of submission and obedience a little bit. For instance, Christians are commanded to obey the governing authorities, the powers that be. And yet the early Christians in the book of Acts, we we see that they tempered this a bit because when the ruling authorities, when the governing authorities commanded them to disobey God, they engaged in acts of civil disobedience and they said, you judge whether it is right in your sight that we obey men or we obey God, but as far as We are concerned we are going to obey God. Now, of course, they realized that such action might bring with it consequences, which it did. But they were willing to suffer those consequences for the sake of their faith. I'm comfortable in saying that if a husband asks a wife to disobey God... Whereas she is normally to voluntarily be in submission to her own husband, she's on good grounds not to submit. Likewise, if a parent asks a child to do something that is in direct disobedience to their heavenly father, I am of the opinion that the child needs to obey God instead. Again, following the example of the early disciples. Now folks, I assume that such occasions in life will be very rare. Unless a parent is asking a child to disobey God, the child is to obey their parents and honor their parents. Now I've told you a number of times about my own father when I was called to preach. Now let me preface my comments here by saying that within about two or three years my dad had come around to being one of my biggest cheerleaders and he continues to be so. I think that's a point that needs to be emphasized. But when God called me to preach, as I've told you before, my dad was a thousand percent against it he was furious about it now the reason he was so furious about it was because unfortunately he had not met a group of people like you I think had he met a group of people like you here in this church his sentiments would have been different but you see he had been a part from time to time of congregations who were very cruel and very unkind to their ministers And consequently, my dad had a very low opinion of how churches treat their ministers. 
He'd seen too many occurrences of people turning on their ministers. And he was not about to let that happen to his own son. And so when I came home and announced that God had called me to preach, he reacted with a great deal of anger, of opposition, and resistance. Now his method of resisting was to initially forbid me from following through on that call to become a minister. When he saw that I was going to continue on and and start my schooling, his resistance turned. He said, I'm not going to pay for any of your college and seminary. If you're going to go this path, you're on your own. And that's what he made me do. But folks, I knew that God had called me to preach. When God called me to preach, I'll say to you that God spoke to me in that occurrence like he had never spoken to me before and admittedly he has never spoken to me since. Not that way. It was a burning bush type experience. It was a Damascus road type experience. I knew what God had called me to do. And so I knew that I had to follow through on what God wanted of me even though it meant the wrath of my earthly father. And about two to three years after I started my education at Wingate, my dad was transferred, his work transferred him just outside of Columbia, South Carolina and they got involved in Dutch Fork Baptist Church in Ballantyne there And a man by the name of David McClamory, not the David McClamory in our church, but a young man by the name of David McClamory was his pastor. And David invested in my dad. And I saw my dad go through a revival in his life. And so his resistance to me instead became support. And so it's a story with a happy ending. Anyway, I realized that a parent may ask their child to do something against God. But apart from that, children are to obey their parents. In fact, one of the very fortunate characteristics of Christian young people is that they often want to know God's will for their lives. I would say to young people, here's a case in point where knowing God's will is as simple as reading His Word. Because His Word tells you that you are to obey your parents. And so I would suggest to young people, if they want God to speak to them in other ways, if they want God to reveal to them, for instance, who they are to marry or what kind of career they are to choose with their lives, a good place to begin would be by starting with those commands in the Bible that we can read in plain black and white. If we're not willing to obey this, why should we suppose that God is going to reveal anything else to us? The motivation for obedience is because he says here it is well pleasing to the Lord. Obedience is well pleasing to God. Now by the way folks, I would say that to any of us. Obedience is well pleasing to God. I think of 1 Samuel 15 where God had told Saul to go to war against the Amalekites and destroy them. And Saul led his people in war against the Amalekites but they didn't didn't kill them off. 
They spared some of the best of the Amalekites and their possessions. Samuel shows up on the scene and Saul says to Samuel, Have you considered that I have obeyed the Lord my God fully? And Samuel said, Oh really? If you have obeyed the Lord your God fully, then what is the bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And then Samuel went on, uh, Saul went on to say, Oh, we spared the best of the Amalekites so we could offer a sacrifice to God. And you remember what, you remember what Samuel said to Saul? He said, Saul, God desires obedience above sacrifice. Obedience. It's well-pleasing to the Lord. Now secondly here, he gives instructions to fathers. Look at what he says to fathers. Verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers' failure to obey what God tells you here in this verse can cause your children to lose heart. Many well-meaning fathers end up doing harm to their relationship to their children because they exasperate their children. The word here means to stir up or to provoke or to irritate. It can even mean to nag. Fathers, don't nag your children lest they lose heart. Now, I would suggest that there are a number of ways that fathers can cause their children to lose heart. You may want to write these down. One way is through overprotection. Some parents allow their children no liberties at all. You know, it's always meant a great deal to me what Dr. James Dobson with Focus on the Family used to say about parenting. He was convinced we get it backwards. He was a proponent of parents being restrictive with young children and as the children grow, we gradually train the child to become more and more independent as they age. We, we allow them more and more liberties, more and more freedoms to make some of their own mistakes and then to learn from those mistakes. He felt like that was healthy parenting. But he was convinced that modern day parents often make a very serious mistake. He said that modern day parents tend to be way, way, way too lenient with their little toddlers. Because after all, everything little Johnny does makes people laugh. And he's so cute. And so they let little Johnny get away with just about everything. Oh, he's young. We're not going to correct him. There'll be time for that later on. And little Johnny gets away with way too much. And then as the child grows and becomes a young teen... Little Johnny is all of a sudden out of control. And so the parents say, we've got to be reining him back in a bit. This is the time, as Dobson says, that they ought to be training little Johnny. He's older, they've been restrictive with him. And now they begin to loosen the cords a little bit and let little Johnny make some of his own mistakes. But because they've been so lenient and he's out of control, now he's a young teen and they're trying to rein him back in. And what happens? Little Johnny rebels. 
He was convinced by parents getting it backwards. They actually are setting their home life up for failure as little Johnny becomes a teenager. Overprotection. I think that's good advice. As they're younger, they need more discipline. They need more control. And as they age, you gradually let the rope out more and more until the child is well prepared to leave home and stand on their own two legs. I've seen parents that are completely over-sheltering with a 16 or 17-year-old child. The 17-year-old has no more liberties, no more freedom, no more independence than a 5-year-old. I think those parents are headed for a great deal of problems. Because that 17-year-old is going to rebel because he becomes exasperated. Now folks, less teens hearing this say, see there mom and dad, see there. What have I been trying to tell you? Notice that I, that I said, allow an aging child to have appropriate freedoms and independence for that age. Don't treat a 5-year-old like a 17-year-old and don't treat a 17-year-old like a 5-year-old. Another way parents can, can exasperate their children, fathers can exasperate their children, is by showing favoritism. I think it's perfectly natural for a parent to perhaps feel a greater bond to one child over another if they have a lot in common with one. But folks, I'm here to tell you, it is a mistake to show favoritism. I think a biblical family where favoritism tore the very family apart would be the case of Joseph. Remember, young Joseph came along and, and his dad made for him that coat of many colors. And it made the other sons jealous. And they were out guarding the flocks one day. And he sent Joseph with his coat of many colors to check on his brothers. Spy on your older brothers and then come home and report to me what they're doing. And so he goes to spy on them and he finds them. And they said, here comes that little brother of ours. And there he is with that coat. And they came up with this scheme. Of course, they were going to kill him originally. But they sold him into slavery. He went down into Egypt. They went back. They, they took his coat of many colors. They dipped it in animal's blood. They took it back to their father and said, We found this. Your youngest son must have been torn to shreds. And we know that his father was grieved. And years and years and years and years went by. And that family was torn apart. All because of favoritism. Parents beware of showing favoritism. Children can pick up on that in an instant. You and I need to realize that our children are different. Don't expect your children to be just alike. God created each child with strengths and weaknesses and certain abilities. God created each child as he determined. And each one of your children is made in the very image of God. 
And so while respecting the differences in your children, affirm the individuality of each one of them. Dads, for instance, if you were a football player and you absolutely love football, you've got one son who loves football, the other son who despises football, doesn't want anything to do with it, try to find something to do with that one son that despises football. Find out what some of his interests are and get involved in that. Don't exasperate your children by showing favoritism. Another way to exasperate your children, dad, is if you're full of criticisms all the time, quick to point out all of their sins and shortcomings, and yet you never have anything encouraging or positive to say toward them. That is a recipe for disaster because they're going to be looking for positive reinforcement somewhere, even if they get that positive reinforcement positive reinforcement from the wrong crowd they're going to go looking for it somewhere another way fathers can exasperate their children is through unrealistic expectations and goals now I realize we all want the best for our kids we want to see each of our children reach their full potential every parent I know wants their child and their children to end up doing better in life than they themselves have done. We all want that. And yes, we need to help our kids with goals. But at the same time, we need to step back and evaluate whether or not we are expecting things of our kids that it would be impossible for anybody to live up to. Now, I'll have to say this is where my parents were a great encouragement to me. I was hard on myself. I ran cross country in high school. I worked about 30 to 35 hours a week at Harris Teeter. I maintained a 4.0 average. If I made a 98 on a test, I beat up on myself because I didn't make a 99. If I made a 99, I was mad at myself because I didn't make a 100. And my parents constantly tried to temper that in me. They knew what I was like, and so they were always trying to temper the expectations I had of myself. Now, my older sister was the exact opposite. (laughs) If 69 was failing, she was perfectly okay with making 70s all day long. In fact, she didn't care if she brought home a a good number of Fs. (laughs) She just didn't care. Complete opposites. But with me, they tried to let me know that it was okay from time to time if I failed. They didn't keep the bar so high with me that I was exasperated. If I was exasperated, it's because I put it on myself. Now, third instructions here. Instructions to slaves and masters. 
Look at what he begins saying in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality masters treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven now let me say something about these verses before we get into them. It should be pointed out that the New Testament does not advocate slavery. In fact, everywhere Christianity has spread across the globe, the church has worked to put an end to slavery. Only in very low periods of the church have professing believers been satisfied to tolerate it. Folks, it ought to be a very distasteful and despicable thing to any believer that one human being could own another human being. One of the great examples of transformation on this very issue was John Newton. Remember John Newton? He wrote the best-known hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton worked in the slave industry. He, he was a despicable individual by his own testimony. And then later on, when John Newton came to faith in Jesus Christ, he became a steadfast opponent of slavery. The proponent turned into an opponent. John Newton wrote that great hymn thinking of his own blindness and his own lostness. He said, once I was blind, but now I see amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. John Newton knew that he had been a wretch. You see, it was the new birth that completely changed John Newton on this issue of slavery. Again, John Newton's experience has been the testimony of the church. Sometimes the church has been slow to act, but fortunately, the church has ended up acting. Christianity has outright condemned and rejected slavery. So Paul's not advocating it. But what he is doing is recognizing that slavery was very much a, a part of the Roman world in the first century. In, his, in fact, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, which very much like Colossians, John R.W. Stott quotes another scholar who claims that all across, if you were to look at, at the span of the Roman Empire, where all they had conquered territory and how long the Roman Empire lasted, over the span of the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. He writes that they constituted the workforce. They also included not only domestic servants and those who did manual labor, but the slave force in, included educated people, doctors, teachers, administrators, 
engineers. These were a part of the Roman slave force. Sometimes individuals would sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. And so slavery could could have a very different tone to it than what we tend to think of. It was still despicable. I certainly don't mean to suggest otherwise. But but again, a person might even voluntarily put themselves into it for a number of reasons. Usually economic reasons. Because slavery was so common in the Roman Empire, it would, have been, it would have been a great oversight. It would have been very curious if the Apostle Paul, as he is writing these house code passages, talking about all the members of the household and what their responsibilities were to be, if Paul would have just skipped over slavery entirely when there were 60 million of them across the Roman Empire, that wouldn't have been proper on his part. You see, he was, he was trying to introduce the gospel and gospel standards in how we ought to treat one another. Even in a relationship like that. How we ought to treat people. You know, sometimes the modern day church is accused of not addressing contemporary issues. You couldn't say that about Paul. He addressed all contemporary issues. Well, what Paul does here is offer words that were intended to revolutionize the reality of slavery. He tells slaves to work honestly and hard and well for their masters and not simply to be good workers when their masters are watching. He, he tells slaves to work honestly. And and to work hard as unto the Lord. And he tells masters to treat their slaves well as fellow human beings. Knowing that they themselves have a master in heaven above. That they're going to give an account to one day. You know as it has often been said in today's world while these words fortunately don't have direct application to us anymore here in the United States there is a certain application that these words do carry for us. Again it's not a direct application. I'm not even trying to suggest that. But I think these words still have a great deal to teach us concerning our employment our work as far as workers we need to give an honest day's labor for an honest day's pay we don't need to be the type of employees that only try to do well when the boss is watching we need to be good employees all the time we need to realize that in our work we are serving the Lord. Folks, what would it do to the work environment today in America if every employee worked heartily as unto the Lord in their work? You know what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Temporary agencies that try to find workers, you know what they would be doing? 
uh, companies would be calling these temporary agencies and they'd be saying, hey, send us more of those Christians. We want more of those Christians because they work 60 minutes out of every hour. And they're honest. They don't steal from us. They work hard and they do right. I read an article a couple of years ago that I would assume it has only gotten worse. It has to do with social media in the workforce. A survey had been conducted, a study, I forget now who had done it, but they found that out of every hour in the American workforce, American workers are playing on their social media 20 minutes out of every hour at work. One-third of their workday is wasted on social media. Think of all the waste. The waste of one's own time, the waste of one's resources, the waste of the company's resources. The question is that we ought to ask ourselves, would God be pleased about your work ethic if you are somebody guilty of this. Now don't, don't make excuses, just be honest. Is this how God wants you spending your day at work? Playing on Facebook and Instagram and other avenues of social media. Christians, we need to be Christ-honoring employees. Back in verse 17, Paul said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We need to put that into practice in our work. We need to work heartily as unto the Lord. We are to work as unto the Lord knowing that it is from the Lord, he says here, that we will receive the reward. And bosses, look at Paul's words here to those who are employers. Treat your employees with respect. You know, just because you are their boss does not mean that you are any better than them. God has put you in a place of leadership. It is a stewardship you have from Him. How are you handling that stewardship? How would God have you treat others? Employers don't treat your employees just from a utilitarian standpoint of view. That they have value to you if they have value to the bottom line of the company. A person is more than the financial aspect that they bring to the bottom line of your company. They are a person created in the image of God no less than you are. No less than you. They have the same trials, the same difficulties at home, the same trials and difficulties in life that you have. And so you need to show some compassion. You know, the Bible says the second greatest commandment Jesus said in Matthew 22 is what? We are to love our neighbor as 
ourself. Now, as I close today, I want you to go back through chapter 3 a moment in your mind. Just go back in chapter 3 for a moment. Paul has said that we are to seek the things that are above. We're not simply to live for the present, but we are to invest in eternity. We are to take off like dirty clothes anything that belongs to the old man apart from Christ whether it's anger or lust or gossip or slander or lies or hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness, we are to lay those things aside and we are to put on like new clean clothes those things that belong to our new nature in Christ. Our new lives in Christ are to impact our homes. It's to impact the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and the master-servant relationship. And so whether at home or out in the marketplace, we are to be different from society around us so that we can be salt and light to society around us. If we're no different, then how do we expect we're going to be able to influence them? And so as we've been looking all through chapter 3, we've seen this idea of change and newness in the whole chapter. That Jesus Christ is to bring a change and a newness to a man's life, to a woman's life. And that light that he brings to our lives is to shine most brightly at home. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that others will see your good works and glorify you. No, not glorify you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's how we're to live our lives. Wherever our feet happen to take us, wherever our circumstances happen to take us, whatever relationship we happen to be in, being a new creation in Christ is to impact that. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, please. As you bow your heads with me, just think a moment about children Children and fathers and employees, employers. I think I've probably hit just about everybody. Whatever your station is in life, how is your light shining? Is your light shining for Christ? I want to ask you right now during the time of invitation to confess your shortcomings and sins to God. Ask Him to give you the wisdom and the strength that you need to carry yourself in such a way that others will see Christ. Folks, remember your mission on earth is not to live for yourself. Your mission is to be conformed to the image of Christ and to make a difference for Him. You and I need to live with that purpose in mind. 
And God, I pray indeed that we would. Lord, I pray that the way that you have treated us with grace and mercy would be what we would model in our relationship with others. Lord, deliver us from living for ourselves and living for the things of the world. Help us to be different. Lord, I pray that we would not blend in with this age. This age is full of darkness and corruption. This age needs the good news of Christ and they need to see that good news lived out in flesh and blood. And I pray that would be the case with each of us. Lord, where we need help, where we need correcting, I pray that you would do that through the power of your Spirit. Where we need encouragement, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that encouragement as well. Strengthen us for these days in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.